What's up, everyone? I'm Colton, and welcome to Navigating DeFi, a podcast where we walk through DeFi projects and concepts in depth. In this episode, I'm joined by Zeus, the founder of Olympus DAO, Glue, a member of the Olympus DAO policy team, and Indigo, a developer and member of the Olympus DAO policy team. Throughout this episode, we walk through why Olympus exists and what role OM will play in the future of DeFi. And we also walk through a variety of policy-related topics and how policy will shape Ohm's future. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that the show notes are available via the link in the description. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the podcast. This is the first time we've had on uh, three guests, so we'll try to handle it uh, the best we can. Before we dive into some of the topics, we'll do like a quick intro of everybody so everybody know the audience knows who's talking and when. Uh, I guess we could just go in alphabetical order. So quick, like your name and what you do at Olympus Dow. Uh, Glue, we'll start with you, Indigo, then Zeus. Hey, everyone. Uh, it's Glue here. I help with partnerships at Olympus Dow, also supporting the, the incubator program. Um, really just looking to find utility and ways to use Ohm across the ecosystem. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm Indigo. I uh, am one of the smart contract devs at Olympus, and I help out with um, direction and like software architecture, things like that. I'm uh, Zeus. I also help out with direction as well as some development. Sick. So, uh, and again, a, a warning in advance, guys, we're like navigating a conversation with three, four people. So if we talk over each other, it's going to happen, but whatever, I think this will be cool nevertheless. So, so to start everything off, let's start by, you know, reestablishing the own narrative. Uh, so Zeus, can you give an overview really quickly of, you know, why Olympus and Ohm exist within the DeFi ecosystem and what problem it's looking to solve? Because I think that's something that's really gotten lost in all of the mania as of late. You know, we are headed into a new global currency. Uh, I think it's kind of as simple as that. Ray Dalio actually just wrote this whole thing on it um, where he was positing it would be the one. Uh, I, you know, it's not a bash on anything. Like you can just look at history and these things play out over the course of like a hundred or so years. Um, and, you know, I, I would have the expectation. I think a lot of people in crypto would have the expectation that crypto would pick up the mantle. Um, you know, the thing is that if you look at crypto, like there's not really anything out there that could actually serve as a currency. Um, you know, it's still a very volatile industry and there's no real reason for that to change. Um, Ohm is meant to be that thing that can be, um, you know, the, the difference in the thing that kind of separates it from the pack being, you know, the fact that you have reserves that back the currency and the ability to influence the currency with those reserves, um, you know, with the, with the goal of introducing credibly neutral currency to pick up the mantle, um, you know, at some point in the future, I don't think this is going to be tomorrow, but that, you know, the world needs to transition into a new currency and to do so while providing liquidity to onboard, you know, the, the existing system, um, you know, it's important that you have a smooth transition from one to another. If you have, uh, you know, a very scarce asset that's hard to acquire, you're just going to leave a lot of people out as you move over to a new system. And, uh, <laughs> You know, if you, it might be good to, to pump your bags in the short term, but if you think about what that does to a society, it's really bad. Um, you know, if you can generate liquidity to onboard people into a new system, that's like the perfect dynamic, um, you know, which is, again, a uh, attribute that, that OM introduces. Um, you know, so really the goal 
is that we can build a viable currency that can then serve as that for DeFi, for crypto, and maybe one day the world. Right. And you also have this this thing that you explore that uh, I guess the best way to describe it is the difference between a money and a currency. So do you mind like going over that? Because I think most people will just not really understand the, the key differences between those two and the way that you conceptualize them. So do you mind walking through that as well? Because I think it's important for, for understanding. Yeah. So, I mean, you have three main monetary attributes to both. Um, so there's store of value, there's a unit of account, and there's medium of exchange. Um, you know, a, a money is going to be better at the store of value one. The, a currency is going to be better at medium of exchange and unit of account. Um, so, you know, if you think about dollars or, or whatever fiat, like they might not hold value as well as like gold does, but they're a lot easier to exchange. They're a lot easier to quote things in. Um, that's kind of the difference. You, you trade off the, the number go up in exchange for easier ability to transact with other people. Um, you know, the, a currency should not be something that appreciates. Um, it, it actually makes a lot of problems for an economy if you have a deflationary currency. Um, you know, but from a money and from an asset, that's much more okay. Um, so there, there's kind of a difference in like, you know, if you want kind of an appreciatory asset, um, that's probably better suited if it's remaining a money than if you're trying to foray into kind of currency. Like you want a currency to depreciate over time for a plethora of reasons. <laughs> Good for debtors, um, but I'll stop there. Makes sense. And I think the, the other key point here is the notion of policy and how that plays into the entire Olympus system. So maybe Glue or Indigo, one of you guys can take this question. Uh, what is policy in the context of Olympus and Ohm, and why is it important for, for the system in the first place? Yeah, so policy in the context of Olympus is, is looking at uh, the different levers that we have available uh, to pull to help bring in either bond inflows or uh, I think as recently posted on the forum, looking at a, a new lever like inverse bonds. Uh, so our team in, in the policy group is really trying to look at the market, um, both the macro market and then the Ohm itself market and trying to figure out uh, what what levers do we pull and when uh, to, to create the healthiest system. Um, I think we'll go into it a little later, but uh, when you look at the two phases that you alluded to earlier, Colton, like we, we had a massive uh, expansion and then a, a bit of a contraction. Um, I think they were great opportunities to, to look at um, opportunities for policy to add more levers or add new instruments that are um, helpful to con control uh, what happens with Ohm in those times. And I'll, I might pass the mic to Indigo to, to talk about um, some of the, the interesting policy levers that are being studied uh, here in the near future. Yeah, um, so I actually just recently joined the policy team like in the last few months. And one of the things that has been really interesting to me was just learning about, um, you know, everyone thinks about like, we just have control over the bonds and things like that. But like learning how liquidity affects it, learning how leverage in the system in different lending markets affects the price and, you know, all the different metrics that we measure um, has been really interesting. So uh, there's things that we have control over and things that we don't and seeing what measures like, you know, what affects what that's been a really uh, cool learning experience for me, to be honest. Awesome. And, and zooming in on this sort of expansion cycle and compression cycle, when we say this, we're referring basically uh, to every 
piece of the Olympus system, right? Whether it's market cap or revenue, et cetera. Uh, you know, if you look back at uh, maybe like September of 2021, something like that, the Olympus system really began to expand. And this is mostly as a, as a result of the own price appreciating rapidly, which has trickle down effects on every other dynamic within the system. And we've recently seen all of that start compressing again, right? The own market, uh, the own market cap is starting to compress. Uh, revenue is starting to compress a bit. The price is starting to compress a bit. Um, Zeus, is this? Are these type of cycles something that you expected when kind of originally designing the system? Right. I know that you know the speculative phase of Olympus style was somewhat predictable, but are these type of expansions and contractions something that you saw coming whenever originally designing everything? Yeah. Uh, amplitude is, is hard to <laughs> guess, but yeah, definitely. Um, you know, kind of, we started out with, I guess, a concession, which is that if you're going to like go to market as currency behavior, it's going to be very, very difficult to actually find any adoption. Um, because honestly, like people don't care that much. Um, <laughs> it is the sad reality. You know, I think that people are here for a different reason. Um, than that and if you can like essentially this opening uh you know year has been a bootstrap um and with that it was more speculative um and prone to boom and busts um so it's definitely to be expected i, I don't think like you know you, you could look at it before this and like it was pretty clear that it wasn't a stable coin um you know but again amplitude's hard to predict yeah um, i mean i guess you can't predict uh when a mania is going to happen or like all of these forks that kind of hijack the mechanisms and actually ended up hijacking and in some ways like bastardizing the narrative i mean that type of stuff is pretty much impossible to predict yeah plus uh you know i just find the macro environment that followed that pretty funny because you, know, you can look around and like a whole lot of things are down 70 80 percent um so <laughs> yeah, yeah um, i think Building on Zeus's point, like the unpredictability of it, I, I do, I, I've been thinking a bit more deeply about the narrative loss in, in the, I think you put it as the, the September time. At, at the peak of all the forks, it was a bit of an interesting time to think like all, all that definitely drags down because um, people calibrate around what the forks are doing. Um, and, and I do think it's important to realize that uh, just because a fork did something or that forks were, were acting in a certain way, it, it wasn't necessarily as influenced by Olympus or something that Olympus is going to um, also pursue. Uh, I think that, that's, that's been lost in the just the groupthink nature of um, DeFi. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an unpredictable world that, <laughs> that we, I think, experienced in, in late 2021 there. Right. Yeah, like literally like thousands of forks. I don't think anything has seen that much um fork activity before i think we're gonna start seeing that uh you know i think that definitely people like perception got morphed by them but that we're gonna kind of move out of that um we can see that a lot of them are actually disbanding now because they thought that building a treasury was the goal in and of itself um there's definitely more <laughs> than that involved um and you know so now they're kind of forced with like okay we we got the treasury we have no idea what to do with it and so we're just going to disband um i don't think there's been any real calls at olympus to disband i don't think anyone working on it has that goal um you know we're moving forward 
um and i don't know i think that this will just be a, a chapter of its life um but interesting yeah. time for sure yeah, yeah. did this, this happen to bitcoin too i don't know but people that have been bitcoiners longer than i haven't so i'm kind of curious isn't this what like bsv and uh all the other bitcoin gold bitcoin ultra diamond or whatever it was absolutely i mean there's there's this like concept of anti-fragility right like this idea that you can survive a, a lot of these big uh dramatic scenarios however awful they may seem in the moment like all that all that matters is that you have the right people behind it and they're willing to pull through and re really willing to continue focusing on the mission so uh, bitcoin has survived this ethereum has survived this and, i mean ethereum in a lot of ways is continuing to go through this battle right we've seen this with a lot of the alternative l1s kind of launching and trying to uh either like make small improvements on the tech to hijack the narrative or hijack developers, hijack projects, whatever. Uh, so, I mean, every project that's at all relevant in any way goes through this in some form or fashion. I mean, Uniswap maybe is a, a more relevant DeFi project to point to that is probably either right ahead of Olympus in terms of the number of times it's been forked or maybe right behind it, but yeah. I think your point on uh, the vision and mission is like probably a very, very important point in my mind. All the forks, like, as, as Zeus said, like, they didn't really think past, like, okay, let's accumulate a treasury, but it's very different here. Like, I, it's funny to me, like, when I joined, people thought I was crazy for joining this project. And then, like, over time, I see, like, okay, people start, you know, they start realizing, like, oh, yeah, there's probably is something here. Like, there's probably a need for a uh, currency that's not tied to any other uh, or pegged to any other currency. And, like... It's funny, like, especially the macro environment now, it's like people, it's just more and more, you know, it just keeps happening. So it's very interesting to see that. And I think that the, the DAO is like, it is like, we do have a very good group of people who do believe in that and like, who really do see a future where we can actually succeed and see this thing actually become something. Yeah, that, that resonates. And I, I think another area of conversation that's really interesting is that how how has policy evolved due to experiencing these extremes over the past several months right like i imagine that the ideas tossed around during a rapid ohm or treasury expansion phase are somewhat different than the ideas tossed around during like an ohm contraction phase like we're in now you can probably speak to this a little organizationally how it's evolved which um i think is interesting and, and maybe zeus and indigo can chime in on some of the new technical stuff again um so, so when policy when it started, I think as as we alluded to, seemed mostly focused on BCVs um, and bond control variables. I'm sorry, should not use acronyms. Um, and they, we spent I think a lot of conversations around that, and then thinking about um, how to optimize the bond control variables to meet uh, the goal um, inflow and emissions. But but now I think we're we're thinking uh, much more strategically. They have new sub teams that have formed out of the policy group. So we we've taken I think people have seen on on Twitter uh, some of our screenshots of the new um, active treasury dashboard, which uh, people have been clamoring for I think across the board. Um, but then also we have a new R and D team that's just thinking of some of the new ideas um, that, that Zeus thinks of, <laughs> and and tries to help translate them in, into a reality. Uh, so more to come on those. And then um, we also have our communications team that it's been really trying to revamp a lot of our, our work on the policy side uh, to make sure that our 
our goals and messaging are clear. Um, I think we've acknowledged that uh, the V2 migration wasn't the smoothest, but as we start to roll out some of these new um, policy levers, we're really excited to uh, ramp up the education, ramp up the the comms, and help people understand uh, the complexities. Uh, Zeus's forum post from a few weeks back about the bond-centric future, I think, introduces a really complex idea, but um, one that is a welcome change from the community and one that we're excited to to share more about. I think um, also directly to the point of like um, what policy is doing during contraction and expansion. During expansion, it seems um, we try to accumulate while premium is high. You try to uh, I, the the mental model for the treasury that. I've attached to, I think Zeus introduced it, was that the treasury is kind of like a battery. So when the premium is high, you want to charge the battery. And when the premium is low or close to backing, like we can, um, we kind of want to ex expend the battery and use it for, you know, market operations or whatever. And this is where inverse bonds kind of spawned out of and among other things. I don't know if Zeus wants to leak anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm not super, uh involved in, in policy these days but yeah I, I think the biggest things are just uh like kind of the <laughs> i like the battery analogy but like you know the, this balancing between protocols assets and reserves versus liquidity you know it can kind of hold um assets in two places one of them is available to the market and the other one is not um you know kind of future available to the market um and then I know that they've been exploring like liquidity strategies. We just deployed into balancer. Um, I think that we have Frax liquidity on Unity 3 now, um, as well as, um, you know, I, I think the majority of it's literally just like following data. Um, you know, the actions are, are a minimal component, I think. Um, it's generally about uh, just keeping a finger on the pulse of what's going on um, more than anything. One of the other things that I think is very interesting uh, that may be relatively unique to Olympus and Ohm itself is this notion of transparency into what's going on under the hood. You know, usually when you think about complex systems like this, really all the user cares about is the end product, right? Like do the, in the case of holding Ohm, like do they have stability? Are they avoiding dilution? Are there things for them to do with that Ohm? But it seems like uh, within the Olympus ecosystem, people are much more in tuned to what's going on underneath like they're they're really worried about risk-free value they're worried about total liquidity they're worried about all of these different data and metrics uh, maybe this is an interesting question for you Zeus is this something you expected in the early days that people would really be interested at scale in this level of transparency or did you expect it to be more of like we introduce ohm to the world and people just kind of abuse it <laughs> um <laughs> well I didn't expect that level of interest for sure. Um, I would love to hear what you mean by abuse. Um, I'm, I'm more just expected like this interest. No, not abuse. I mean, use like <laughs> just use it, uh, not abuse it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely cool to, you know, the, the amount of like mind share that we've captured and like talent that comes with that has been amazing, but I, I definitely wouldn't have guessed to like people would be that into, especially like the details. Uh, I think it's great, but yeah, I mean, it's just like a weird thing, right? Because usually you release a product or something to the world and people just don't care about how it works under the hood as long as it as it works for them. And I've just been kind of fascinated by the amount of people who want to to get into the details. And Indigo, I see you're unmuted, so feel free to take it from me. Yeah, 
Well, I just wanted to say, like, the thing that attracted me when I first learned it was, like, it's, like, as a token model nerd, you know, I, I watch all the protocols in the space, and, like, this is by far the most interesting token model. So I think I think that appeals to a lot of people, too. Like, they like seeing innovation and new things in the space. So. Yeah, especially when it's not just a, a pet rock, like, governance token or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... Another another hot topic as of late that I think is important for for us to dive into is Ohm's backing. So uh, some some people in the Twitter sphere are you know confused about Ohm's total backing versus its liquid backing, how and when inverse bonds are enabled, etc. So uh, just for posterity, at the time of this recording, Ohm's price is around twenty eight dollars. Its total backing is thirty three dollars, and its liquid backing is something like just over twenty three dollars. I'm not mistaken. Uh, so can we get a like broad overview of some of the nuances around Ohm's backing, how it works, and, and why it's important? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you have two main components. Um, so you can just measure uh, the assets the protocol has. Um, the, the reason there's different metrics is there are different accounting or like means of accounting. So the same as like in the corporate world, you have like the gap uh, kind of standard which is one way to account for things um you know because the, the issue is that if you use a different methodology you're going to get different answers um so we do have like a couple of different methodologies there um you know so one of them is just market value backing um so what you would do there is just take the value of all the assets that the protocol has and then divide by the supply out there um the like quote unquote issue with that approach is that you're going to be including in the assets, like the value of Ohm sitting in liquidity pools. Um, Cause that's just included. Like if you have an LP share that has, you know, $1 worth of die and $1 worth of Ohm, that's going to be $2 worth. Um, but you're now counting that as like $1 worth of Ohm you're counting as the backing of Ohm. And then the, the kind of alternative approach to that is liquid backing, which would take away that own component. Um, so now you just have the die that's in that liquidity pool um, and then any other assets that the treasury has um, and divide that by supply. Um, so those are kind of the two main ones. Um, there's one other one as well, which is you do those same metrics, but you remove whatever uh, ohm is in that pool. Um, the reason there being that whatever is in the pool is really owned by the protocol and kind of doesn't exist until someone buys it and moves it out of the pool. Um, before then, it's more akin to like supply that has been minted, but doesn't isn't in circulation yet. Um, so that would give you like same metrics, but you slap a floating moniker before them. Um, so there's actually a, a pretty big gap at this point because the protocol now has repurchased like 20% of supply. So there, there's kind of like a, a gap that forms between them as well. Um, you know, I, I think that actually uh, probably a good exercise for us and like the community um, moving forward is just like if we're going to be tracking these things as closely as we all are, like, you know, we should probably come together on a, uh, you know, accounting measure that we want to use kind of in the long term. I think currently that's been liquid backing, um, which I don't think is a, a bad one to use, but just so that people understand like how different numbers come to be. It's a matter of you know, how you choose to count um, and account for things. So I'll, I'll pass it over and then we can talk uh, inverse bonds. 
I was gonna. I wanted to add to this section about backing. Um, I, I've been talking to Indigo a bit here about uh, the general crypto markets, and um, actually, kind of tying into the last question and comment uh, is that I, I was attracted to, to Olympus because I, I felt as I looked onward into the DeFi ecosystem, we've really latched on to, to modern monetary theory uh, in that we just make tokens out of thin air, and then everyone says it's great yield. And I know that there's a lot of discussion on, on crypto Twitter about Olympus yields and, and the APY, et cetera. But I do think that the, the concept of backing um, with whatever accounting method you, you choose, as you said, uh, is attractive in the sense that these, these tokens are, are meaningful uh, and, and they're meaningful as defined by the market, but, but not only that, meaningful by one of these metrics of backing. And so I, I wanted to add to the last comment and in addition to this, that it's, it's a really attractive part of Olympus that, that there is a backing. Um, and I know that the, there's lots of memes out there, but I do think it truly matters because we've, we've been living in kind of this pretend land of let's just make an ERC-20 and then mystically new capital appears. <laughs> oh, so you mean like, you mean governance power isn't actual backing glue? Is that what you're implying? <laughs> I think it is, um, <laughs> you know, in, in some ways. Um, I, I really played new... mental gymnastics. <laughs> I think if you, if, if it in a future state, and it's another, it's, I think that's a later podcast, but I'm excited for on-chain governance and governance power to be meaningful. Um, I, I haven't seen a superb implementation today, but this is a new area and I'm I'm loving watching it. Yeah, I think we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but one more comment on that. Like, I think governance power is an interesting part of like a token's value. I just think it, at this point in the space, it's such low hanging fruit that people can't really put too much weight onto it at, at this point in time, mostly because governance for the most part is in a really primitive state. Uh, most people are bored by it. A lot of the entrants in the space aren't that interested in governance power. So it's just too hard to put like a lot of monetary weight on it. Um, but anyways, we could, we could skip past this and, and get into, into inverse bonds and Indigo, I'll pass it to you for this. Do you mind giving a, a brief overview of inverse bonds, how they tie into this whole concept of, of Ohm's backing, and then we can just take it from there. Yeah, so inverse bonds are, um, surprise, they're just our regular bonds inverted. So rather than um, us buying a token and paying out in Ohm, we are buying Ohm and paying out with our reserves. It's a way to, like I said, the battery, right? So the battery, we recharge the battery. This is our expense, like the use of the battery. Um, when, and this is kind of like the implicit control system that policy kind of uses. So this is the new tool that we've kind of formulated. And um, this is how we can, when you're below backing, you can use inverse bonds to kind of raise and come back to backing or above. And, and for the people who are listening, what backing here is important and at what threshold are these in, inverse bonds actually activated? And then last question at the end of that, is this an automatic process? Is this something that's done through governance or, or what's the actual scope of the implementation there? Okay, that's that's interesting. So currently we're, we are manually setting these, but this is kind of the, the efforts in 2022 is to automate a lot of these processes. So, um, and I will go into this later, but this goes into also what um, the guys at Gauntlet have written in their paper and like 
automating those kinds of issuance of bonds is like a huge goal for us. And we can talk about the effects of that later. Cool. And so for the first half of that question, I'll let Blue or Zeus take it like with regards to uh, when inverse bonds are actually turned on. So which which backing metric is used for that and why, if it's important, and then what threshold under that backing are these bonds actually turned on? Yeah, uh, to date, it's chartered to policy. Um, so there was a OIP that like bestowed that. Um, I believe their intent is below liquid backing. I'm kind of the like, I think that there's this weird, honestly, like detrimental relationship to only utilizing the treasury below backing. Um, I, I think like probably one of the good things with seeing so many like, you know, spinoffs of us is being able to watch a thousand iterations um, where it really ends up like acting like a magnet. Um, you know, I, I think the reason for that just being like, if you keep saying this number, over and over and over, it's just going to attract everything to that number. Um, so versus like, if you don't have a, a backing and a floor, then, you know, no one's going to talk about zero. And so, you know, kind of the sky's the limit. Um, it's kind of like that, uh, that pre-revenue meme. If you've ever seen that from the show, Silicon Valley, <laughs> you know, where <laughs> if you're pre-revenue, then, you know, like your valuation can be anything. Um, yeah, uh, but I believe that it's going to go into effect below liquid backing. Um, yeah, again, I, I kind of just think that, you know, we can let it rip. But there's a second part there, but maybe that was a... Yes, if is it, are the bonds automated or not? Oh, no. oh, yeah. I mean, that's like all I'm focused on <laughs> at this point these days is just like automating everything. It's like a policy um, job, but tomorrow, probably not. Yeah, and and like branching off of that, and maybe Indigo, this is a good question for you. Like, how much of the Olympus system do you think could realistically be automated over the next year? Like, which parts are really easy to automate, and which parts are are pretty difficult to automate, just because of of the nuance of the mechanism? Yeah, this is a great question. This has actually been my focus for like the last few months. Um, I've been tweeting about like looking into control systems and just researching a lot about this. Um, I think actually it depends right like no one's done this before so we're and one thing about the olympus system is that it is somewhat of a governance heavy system and that's why we need a policy team so um and getting rid of that like how the question is like how can you automate what policy is doing i don't think you'll ever get to a hundred percent but i think like you could probably do like 60 to 80 percent you could automate um, what I think you could automate is probably bond issuance. It depends on what kind of metrics that we settle on. And, um, you know, and then another portion of that, that is also another focus of 2022 is like the on-chain governance and like how we can make sure that governance, first of all, is we don't get, you know, like a governance attack, which is the, the biggest worry, but like also what kinds of parameters uh, is this governance actually in charge of? What parts can we just um, derive from like market values and oracles? These kinds of things are all like big questions in our minds. But uh, yeah, this is, like I said, a big focus of ours. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, it would be really fascinating to see some of these really key parts uh, of the system automated over time because that allows 
and maybe glue you can you can add on to this like it allows the policy team to start focusing on broader stuff and more strategic stuff um whereas like right now the policy team is kind of having to butt heads over maybe some of those decisions that are less impactful uh, just because they they kind of have to uh, actually execute on those manually uh, is there anything that you're excited about uh glue from like the automation perspective so that you could focus on so, on other things yeah yeah so I'll, I'll add another plug that I think on-chain governance is is probably the big unlock here. Um, I, I also agree with Indigo. I think, like anything in life, if uh, anyone comes to comes from the robotics industry, um, automation is, is a bit of a meme. It's not always perfect, and it always needs a bit of a human touch. I'm a big fan of this um, human-in-the-loop style uh, operation, where even if the system is in place uh, that Zeus has been toiling away at to, to automate a lot of it. Um, I think it's important to have humans be uh, a, a gate check or, or part of the system as well. And so the, the thing I'm most excited about is on-chain governance. Um, I shout out to the tribe DAO and what they're working on with optimistic governance. Um, I just listened to Colton to your talk with Kirk and I think um, he's also a big fan of that. Um, yep. And I think that there's a lot of systems that have been discussed um, and, and I, I think it's just this unexplored territory of, of DeFi in general that we haven't yet found optimal governance systems. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's probably what I'm most excited to see. Um, and, and I think it, and it's, it's both an enabler and an amplifier for uh, these automations that are coming forward. I want to say one, one last thing to the, um, to the automation. I know Zeus unmuted too. I'll, I'll keep it quick, but um, one, thing that's inspired me is like the ungovernance uh, focus from Rye. I think it's been really awesome. And I think like uh, their focus on that has been really interesting because like of all the governance problems that have come up in the last year. And so like, they're just like, okay, screw all of that. We're just gonna do automate every single piece of this. So, and I think um, tying this to like the overall vision, I think the automation and the on-chain governance are like a huge part of making the system credibly neutral. And then it's at that point, then we can be like, okay, there's no, you know, there's a few humans in the loop, but it's all decentralized completely, you know? Yeah. Um, I really liked how you asked the question there. Cause like, I, I think there's a really big challenge that's like quite unique to us, which is um, the presence of assets that the protocol owns. Um, so if you look at the, the vast majority of projects out there, especially those that are, you know, governed directly by tokens, um, they won't actually control any assets other than maybe the protocol token. So in the case of like Uni, they have a large treasury, but it's all Uni tokens. And so like, you know, the, the vector for attack is quite minimal because if you build up enough stake to attack their treasury, you're just going to end up with tokens that are now worthless. Um, you know, in the case of Olympus, um, you could, you know, if you can accumulate enough share of the network um, where, you know, the, the tokens directly control the treasury, then you can just take the entire treasury. Um, and you don't need liquidity to exit that because that is your liquidity. Um, and so there's this dynamic that like kind of demands a premium because, you know, if you can accumulate or if you can take the entire treasury with a third of the supply, then so long as you're bidding below a 3x premium, that's going to be a profitable endeavor. You know, you're going to buy up what you need to, um, and then you're going to take the entire uh, treasury. 
um, and, you know, take some profit in between. Um, but you, you always said this before that, like, you know, people don't place really enough value on governance today. Um, you know, so if we were to have that be the case right now, like there would be like a, a very real rug risk. Um, that's just like, you know, someone comes in and governance attacks the network and now everyone else is fucked. Um, I think that that's kind of the, the toughest nut to crack. Um, you know, like there's really cool dynamics with like demanding a premium and like you kind of have an equilibrium, but like whether that relies on rational behavior to, to carry that out and make sure that that's the case. Um, and it does feel like maturity is not quite there yet, that that's something that we can like really, you know, you got to kind of put all your eggs in that basket. Um, just seems like a bit of a scary endeavor. Um, so the goal has kind of been like, okay, how do we just remove that vector entirely? Um, you know, how do we kind of automate treasury processes so that there is no honeypot sitting there of, you know, accumulate governance and steal from everyone else in the network? It's a really uh, interesting problem that I actually <laughs> hadn't thought about. And you're absolutely right. I mean, especially I think the uni example is the best one just because a governance attack on uni is perhaps like not that interesting. Whereas, uh, you know, the floodgates are a little bit more open with regards to, to the Olympus treasury. Um, from here, I'd, I'd love to start talking about the future of policy and the future of the Olympus Dow system, because it's going to go through some really interesting changes over the next year or so. Uh, and that's this transition to a bond centric model. So I would love to start off with, uh, some of the pros and cons of the current model and why transitioning to a bond-centric model uh, is probably a better route to go. So Tarun Chitra from Gauntlet wrote this paper um, about OM, um, specifically like the bond mechanism and how, you know, it does display characteristics that can, you know, imp or enforce uh, and promote stability in the system. Um, one of the big takeaways, like that, that was like a very cool, um, paper to read just because, you know, he came at it very independently. They just kind of told us, like, they didn't let us see it until the paper was done. Um, and it was, you know, like good validation of what we were up to. But one of their big takeaways was like the interest rates that the bonds create are really important for, uh, you know, kind of maintaining consistency and stability in the, in the system. Um. So, you know, those interest rates being whatever the discount on the bonds are. So, you know, the way that these bonds work is that um, they kind of have a free floating price and it's left to the market to decide what uh, ohm at some point in the future is worth. Um, what the internal bonds do is, you know, currently under that structure, um, we're reliant on actual like external assets coming into the treasury to create that dynamic. Um, so, you know, for every bond that gets sold, um, some amount of like die or fracks or whatever uh, has to go into the treasury. Um, and so we are, we're, we're kind of uh, like limited by the capacity that can be offered um, by, you know, the amount of like other assets we can take into the treasury. Um, what internal bonds do is shift that towards um, you're just accepting ohm in exchange for future ohm. So you remove the need for external assets to create those interest rates, um, you know, and, and so we can kind of do that on a much larger scale. And then there's like very cool, uh, like avenues for, you know, now you have a bunch of these, of this like future data dome, 
Um, you can create liquid markets for that um, where people can trade in both directions like ohm in you know September um, versus ohm today or versus ohm in June. Um, and now you have this this market of interest rates um, that are, are you know more and more liquid, um, more and more useful when it comes to like so if people start to borrow them, um, that's what's going to dictate the interest rates on borrowing is going to be, okay, what is my return for the same time period in a bond? Um, what are you offering me? Uh, is this more or less liquid? Does this carry more or less risk? And that's where interest rates are going to come from. Um, I had one other thing, but it's eluding me. <laughs> no worries. I mean, so it, it basically establishes this, uh, you know, risk-free rate for, for the Olympus for the Olympus ecosystem, not to mention, you know, some of the more like second order effects of having this type of liquid bond market, you know, like, it, you know, tokenizing these bond by tokenizing these bonds projects, like, I don't know, Fiat DAO, for example, can come in and help expand the ecosystem further and provide newer, more unique use cases, which enables further innovation, so on and, and so forth. And so is the key for, for these new types of bonds to replace staking and if so, like, what is the importance there? Is it to, uh, you know, maybe not uh, replace the these passive holders, but more to uh, encourage active behavior in the system such that it's like more productive? Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely a level like I don't think that I wouldn't expect that anywhere near the majority is actively um, engaged, um, but it's not something that would replace staking. It's something that would supplement it. So when you look at staking, the benefit that that's going to have over these is you can only expect liquidity and you're reliant on third-party liquidity to move out of a bond. Um, in the case of staking, the protocol provides you that liquidity to move out of it. So if you look at the architecture of the system, um, the protocol provides a ton of liquidity against other assets but it only does so against Ohm. Um, so Ohm is the token that you need to acquire to access any of the liquidity that the protocol is providing. Um, if you're in staking, you have infinite liquidity to get back to Ohm. So you have one SOM, protocol will always give you one Ohm. So you now have Ohm and you can go and use the liquidity pools that it's providing. Um, in the case of the bond tokens, um, you have one Ohm September, um, you should be able to sell that because someone else is going to value that future token at something. Um, but you are reliant on those third-party, uh, you know, liquidity pools available that you can sell into those to acquire OM, and then you can use that OM in the protocols liquidity pools. Um, so with that, you should expect that like staking is this minimum rate. Um, that's what sets your interest rate floor, and then bonds build on top of that and provide higher rates. Uh, in return for higher risk of illiquidity. So like short-term bonds will probably be pretty close to the staking rate. Um, and then, you know, the, the further out you go, um, I would expect the higher that they yield. Um, there's a, I remembered the, the other thing I was going to say, which is that there's a very cool dynamic when you look at like the protocol only providing liquidity against Ohm. Um, so in that sense, you can think of like all the Ohm that it doesn't own as a liability um, in that, that ohm can take its assets when it wants to. Um, under this bond model, you are turning those present liabilities into future liabilities. 
So you're you're having people give the present liability of OM today, and then you're giving them back OM tomorrow. And now you don't have to worry about the OM that they just gave you because you have it um, as the protocol. Um, and so when it comes to utilizing the treasury, the the treasury's impact and like power over the market is multiplied by whatever or percent of supply um, enters these bonds. Um, you know, if half of supply goes into them, it now has twice as many assets relative to the the supply that's circulating, um, because you know half of it is now future supply. Um, cool dynamics there. Um, and then in terms of like activity. Um, you know, I would have the expectation that like vaults form. So like, I think Fiat DAO might, might do something like that. Um, there's a couple other protocols, but like the idea being that you can just deposit into them and then they do the activity for you and you just sit back and, you know, drink beers on the beach or whatever you want to do. Right. And, and that was basically going to be my next question because a, a transition like this adds a lot of complexity, right? I mean, the current system is relatively straightforward for people to interact with. You know, maybe bonds take an extra week or two to wrap your head around to make sure you're using them efficiently, but uh, buying omen staking and, and whatever is like pretty straightforward. Whereas when you introduce these new bond types that have uh, implications for interest rates and all this type of stuff, like all of a sudden you assume a certain level of knowledge for your user. And I was, I was going to ask, you know, what do you think the biggest challenge there is going to be with scaling that up? But it seems like uh, the solution is pretty much similar to to the way Uniswap v3 has been able to scale up. And it's by uh, people coming and building services on top of this model uh, that allows uh, the, the normal person, for example, to access uh, some of those benefits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I think one big part is the um, the allowance for a secondary market to form. And this is one of the big advantages of like tokenizing things is that you can allow this kind of organic growth. Um, what's interesting to me is that from the protocol's perspective, it's like a complete positive, right? It adds predictability to the system from the protocol's perspective and it allows um, policy to make better decisions because, the, because of that predictability. Um, and I think another portion of this is like the stability that is, uh, that the policy team is supposed to, you know, as, as they learn and they will have more power over, um, over this like goal of stability. Um, as far as how the users will look, um, this is the idea of like, there will be like the risk-free staking. Like, so like, there's no, there's no um, difference really. Like you'll still be able to stake just like you do now. Right. But any kind of like extra yield that you might want, um, it'll go through a vault, just like how, like, if you go through a yearn vault, like you don't know what strategy they're doing, but like you just go through the vault and it's kind of abstracted away from the user. This is one of the goals of like, we can, we can see that like in the future, we would hope that like bond vaults would form as well. So like um, services pop up that optimize for different yields for different, you know, uh, using different strategies on the on the bond vaults. But the most important thing to me is that from the protocols perspective, it actually doesn't change. So it's actually just purely a secondary market thing, which is really, really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And and you mentioned something earlier, which is this flexibility on the policy side. Glue, is there anything uh, that excites you about this new bond-centric mo model in terms of uh, opportunities it opens up from from a policy perspective? Perspective. The the thing that I think is most interesting about the bond-centric future is the alignment of the community. So being able to say, 
you can three three today, right? And that expresses that you're you're in it to hold and be together. But I think in this bond centric future, uh, it, it's cool to show how aligned you are. And then I think the other thing that has been top of mind uh, has been the yield curve that's going to be derived from this. And um, as you mentioned, the, the secondary bond market that that forms, I think, is really fascinating. Um, Policy doesn't directly influence those things because I think it's going to come from uh, third parties, as you mentioned. But uh, I think it's it's really cool, um, and and it's a, it's an interesting new opportunity to build on top of Olympus. the The other piece that I think uh, kind of turns back my mind is what happens um, once there's a lot of different bulk creators. How how governance forms. <laughs> I didn't realize how how much I'd think about governance on this podcast, but um, it is it's sort of the the top thing on my mind uh at the moment so um yeah i'm excited about a bunch of different things for this <laughs> future um but a lot of it centers on governance yeah i mean sure is there anything you want to do expand on on that governance perspective that you think you know the the secondary actors coming to the system might change about any assumptions we currently have with regards to governance in the olympus system yeah it's 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 what zeus alluded to earlier so not only do you have um somewhat the concern of uh, an irrational actor coming in and trying to um, honeypot the, the Olympus treasury. But I think you, you also have that same possibility for a, a really optimal bond vault creator. So I, I think about it a lot, how we, how we can work around it. Um, Cause I do think these vaults will be quite popular products um, in the future. There will still be the three, three staking as Indigo mentioned, but I think that the bond vaults um, are going to be really um an interesting new product that is formed yeah i mean at the end of the day incentives are king and people are going to chase chase the higher yield if, if the opportunity is there for them and and so if these vaults are, are producing some yield that's slightly higher than staking then i imagine that that people are going to participate in them um and that that leads to another question are there any sort of consequences to this positive or negative where uh, maybe they're uh, just, you know, for the, the purpose of exploring an extreme, are there any consequences to uh, maybe these vaults performing so well that nobody's staking? I personally don't see that as an issue. Um, yeah. I mean, cause you're always going to be taking on higher risk and providing something more productive to the system um, within the bond sphere versus staking. Um, so I wouldn't expect to actually ever get to the point where no one is staked um, in that, like, at a minimum, the vaults are going to be staked um, because that's, you know, that would probably fit into a good strategy is that you have some, like, essentially liquid cash on hand. Um, but, yeah, I, I would see that as a dub, not a not a thing to be concerned about. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I just wanted to explore the extreme just in case. Yeah. Um, just like in terms of what this looks like, as I would imagine, like I think that you would have a lot of people deposit into vaults and yeah, there, there's probably like a coalition kind of forming effect of that where you have like, I kind of look at it like city states um, in terms of like where governance might head with that. Um, but those vaults, you know, would be maintaining liquidity in secondary markets um, and then probably arbing differences in the yield curve. Um, the, the big thing with the yield curve being that you can kind of like project where a certain bond should trade, and then you can trade according to that. So if it's overvalued, you can sell it. If it's undervalued, you can buy it. Um, I would expect that there are th some, you know, third parties that just like arbitrage those rates 
um, and, you know, kind of extract alpha from them. Um, but all of those are good because they just like facilitate a healthy market. And the, the hope would be that you can come in as someone who has no idea about any of this. Um, you can project that you intend to, you know, have them until December. Um, you can buy a December bond. You're going to purchase that at a fair value. And then you can just hold that and, you know, you're, you're going to earn some additional yield versus uh, having just been staked or having deposited into a vault um, because those things are going to kind of mitigate your risk and increase your liquidity. Um, so, you know, kind of like that you can kind of treat it just at face value, like all that background um, activity that's more sophisticated really just serves to make sure that you can come in as someone with no idea what you're doing and be quoted fairly and have that, you know, not be a bad thing, right? That you can just treat it at face value of, okay, December, this yields a little bit more, whatever. Um, let's do it. Yeah, I, I'm stoked for that. And as as we approach the the end of this conversation, I'd love to figure out some sort of like what the roadmap to actually get there looks like. You know, so far uh, you got you, Indigo and Zeus, you guys are, uh, have posted uh, the paper. It seems a lot of people were interested and excited about it. And then from there, Zeus, I know you posted a forum uh, post that was basically kind of a, a request for comment where uh, people were kind of giving their feedback and exploring it. So from here, uh, what does the roadmap to the bond-centric future look like from, uh, I guess, a technical perspective, Indigo, and then just a, a policy perspective overall? So in my mind, there's a few prerequisites that we need in order to get to that future. And uh, that was one of the parts of the forum post that we posted. It would take at least like six to eight, 12 to 18 months, maybe. I mean, those are it's hard to predict from this far out, but um, every day we're working towards that. Um, as far as details on the roadmap, uh, I don't know how much I want to say. No, you don't have to leak all the alpha, okay. just like a rough, yeah, a rough summary. Okay. Um, this is hard. To, okay. <laughs> this is to, conversation to, we were having, yeah. Yeah, sure. To help <laughs> it out, to help it out, um, is this going yeah. to be a modular process where, you know, there's kind of steps in yes. between? Okay. So it's not oh, going to yeah, be yeah. something that's just dropped on everybody all at once and they have to figure out no, what no, the hell no. is going on. Yeah. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah. So, so there's about like, uh, we've identified like six pieces that we need. I, I would say, I think like five or six different pieces that, um, will eventually fit together. So like each of those pieces being developed over time. So, uh, yeah, Zeus, maybe you have more details. I don't know how much we want to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really like if you look at this structure, it's, it's locking tokens, even though an individual might not be locked, um, but the underlyings get locked. Um, you know, the the, the kind of consensus is that we need to get the, the automation pieces and get the whole system to a point where you can feel quite comfortable with people like committing to illiquidity um, because there's not going to be like radical changes in the system beyond that. Um, you know, versus like you just take in a bunch of tokens that get locked and then if you change things there, it's a little bit more sus because um, now, you know, you're, you're kind of cutting off the exit. Um, you know, I think that that shouldn't be the case. Um, so yeah, there, there's, it's like five things that the, the six is like internal bonds actually like make up two things. Um, so there, there's probably like a soft intro and then it gets built out from there. Yeah. So, um, so basically users will have this kind of opportunity to, uh, walk before they have to have to run. Yeah, awesome. and uh, one of one of the key pieces is the bonds 
system and we actually uh olympus pro is like essentially like the base layer that, that would allow this and this is pretty much done with development it will be on an audit soon so that's the first piece actually amazing yeah well i i'm really excited for all of this uh i think we covered <laughs> covered a lot of ground today and covered a lot of the uh, interesting like policy stuff that I think most people aren't completely in tuned with just because it, it's I mean it's a hard space to navigate right they're they're trying to navigate understanding risk-free value they're trying to navigate understanding the transition to the bond centric model they're trying to understand all of this stuff so being able to follow each part can can be a bit tricky so uh, is there anything else uh, any closing thoughts maybe that uh, we left out that are you guys think are important to touch on we didn't get to go to the stability part, but maybe that's part two. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do a part two as, as some modular stuff comes out. Um, I definitely encourage people to read some of the resources around this transition to a bond-centric model and how it's going to introduce new stability to Ohm and, and the system as a whole. Um, obviously, the white papers and stuff can be a bit complex, and hopefully there's a little bit more blog posts that come out around this to make it easier to understand. I have a Twitter thread that I will provide in the show notes that I think walks through it in a way that's pretty basic. Um, but yeah, I, I'll try to provide every resource I can so people can can dive into that stuff. I appreciate you guys, you know, taking the time to walk through all of this. Um, any any last shout outs that you guys want to give before before we close it off? Shout out to the Omis who are still there. We haven't forgotten you, I promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you just brought up OP. Uh, I just think like the the OP like new architecture is so cool. Um, like it just enables the ability for for anyone to like spin up a market for one asset for another one um it's very cheap and now you just have an automated manner to convert one asset into another over whatever span of time that you want it to occur um i don't know it, it super powerful just the amount of like <laughs> oh we could do that just spin up an op market um you know like with the with the internal bonds like the way that we're going to do that is just spin up an op market um huge design space. I'm, I'm excited for us to explore it. And, uh, you know, I'm excited for other people to do so as well. Amazing. And so some of these things as in to go into that, we'll have to do a part two and dive into those and, and what their implications are. But once again, thanks everybody for joining. I really appreciated the conversation and uh, thanks for everybody for, for tuning in. Peace out guys. Thank you. Thank you.